In Revelation 5, we have the opportunity to continue what we were doing in Revelation 4 last week. The purpose of Revelation 4 was to kind of get us out of thinking about all the stuff going on on earth and to transport us to heaven, to help us to set our minds not on the things of the earth, but on the things that are above. Well, in Revelation chapter 5, we're going to continue that, but we're going to see a scene that takes place in heaven that I don't think we will fully understand without some background. So what we want to do today before we get to Revelation 5 is we want to explore two scenes that come earlier in history that will help us to understand what it is we're going to see happening in heaven. So today we start not with the future and not with what's going on above us, but we start with a story from a long time ago. The year is 553 BC. The children of Israel, the Jewish people, are in exile in Babylon. The Jewish people, these are the descendants, the biological descendants of Abraham, the man of faith. To Abraham, God promised that he and his descendants would be blessed by God and would be a blessing to all nations. God loves the whole world and wants to bless the whole world, and his plan was to do it through Abraham and his descendants. As part of this great promise that God made to Abraham, he took Abraham's descendants, the Jewish nation, out of captivity in Egypt where they were enslaved. And by God's mighty power, he led them out through signs and wonders and brought them into a land he had promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of goodness, a land of blessing. In that land, he allowed them to grow and prosper until finally God gave to them a king to lead them, a man named David, a man after his own heart. David was not perfect, but God was pleased with David. And David led the people to a place where they were worshiping and following the Lord, and they were indeed a blessing not only to themselves, but to other nations as well. As part of that blessing to others, God gave to David the responsibility to prepare to build a house for him. It was David's son Solomon who built that house, a home for God on this planet. To David, God also gave a promise that David would have a descendant who would sit on David's throne and reign and rule in righteousness and goodness forever and ever. But in 553 BC, these same children of Israel are broken and defeated. They're in exile. They're not in that land that God had given to them. There is no Davidic king. There is no descendant of David who is ruling over them. Instead, they are ruled over by a Babylonian king as part of a foreign empire. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 in the north had been scattered and dispersed. All that remain are two, Judah and Benjamin. And they are in exile. They are in captivity. 
And perhaps worst of all, God's house, the place in which you could come on this earth and meet with the living God, the temple, destroyed. And God had withdrawn his presence from Israel. The Jewish people are crushed, broken, shattered. All their hopes and dreams, all these beautiful promises, all these things that ceremonies and festivals and Sabbath worship have been pointing to, all this stuff. And none of it was happening. Just a small group of individuals living in captivity in a foreign empire. But among those exiles there was a godly young man named Daniel. And Daniel was invited by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian empire, to be one of his, uh, to work for him, to serve him as one of his nobles. This Daniel was a godly man who was full of the Holy Spirit. And to Daniel, God gave the ability to interpret and to understand dreams and visions. Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar faithfully, and he served his son, Belshazzar, as well. In 553 BC, Daniel's not a young man anymore. He's 67 years old. It's the first year of Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, who is reigning over the Babylonian Empire. And in 553 BC, Daniel has a vision. It's a vision of the future, a dream, if you will. It happens to be the most important vision in all of the Old Testament. And our first scene this morning is to look at that vision. So I invite you to take a Bible and turn not to the book of Revelation, but to the book of Daniel chapter 7. The book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. Chapter 7, if you're using one of the church Bibles, is page 726. If you're using your own Bible and you're kind of looking for Daniel, if you get somewhere in the middle of the book, if you can find Isaiah or Jeremiah, Lamentations or Ezekiel, those are bigger books. Daniel is just past Ezekiel. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then comes Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, page 726. As I said, this vision that we're about to look at is the most important vision in the Old Testament. It begins with things that are happening or will happen on the earth. Those are the first eight verses. In verse 9, where we're going to pick up the story, something really amazing happens. Daniel is given not a vision of the earth, but his focus shifts to heaven. And the heavens open up and Daniel is allowed to see into heaven. And he describes for us what he sees. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place, And the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
The Ancient of Days is another term for God the Father. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. This is a very powerful and important scene in heaven. In verses 11 and 12, Daniel's vision shifts from heaven back to earth for a moment. And then in verse 13, it shifts back to heaven. And something happens in this vision that is absolutely jaw-dropping and stunning to Daniel. He says, in my vision at night, verse 13, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, a human looking person coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, the one like a son of man. His domain is an everlasting domain that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So confusing, so stunning, so overwhelming is this vision to Daniel that in the midst of the vision, he turns to one of the angels next to him and says, can you explain what in the world is going on? The angel begins to explain the vision to Daniel. He starts by explaining the stuff we skipped, which is the stuff that was happening on earth. And then he turns his attention to explain what Daniel saw in heaven. Verse 27. The angel says, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the most to the holy people of the most high his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him this is the end of the matter but listen to what daniel says i daniel was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself. At the end of this vision, Daniel is sick to his stomach. Why? Well, as a good Jewish boy, the very first commandment he would have ever learned, the most important commandment of the 10 commandments that God gave to the Jewish people was, you shall not worship anybody but God alone. There was no more important command than to not worship anyone but God alone. And yet, here in a vision, which is from God, of heaven, God is seated, the ancient of days, on a throne. And one who looks like a human 
comes into God's presence and the Son of Man is worshipped in God's presence. Can you imagine what a Jewish person who has been brought up to understand that to worship anyone other than God would be the ultimate blasphemous thing to do, that anybody who worshiped someone other than God was to be stoned and put to death, yet here in a vision from God, There is one who looks like a human, not like God. God is glowing white. But one who looks like a human is led into God's presence. And all the peoples of the earth and the angelic hosts worship this one. Daniel is hopelessly confused. He's sick to his stomach. Everything he knows is being turned on its head at this very moment. But we're not done. The vision continues. Chapter 8 is another vision of the future that Daniel receives. Turn the pages with me as we go through these. Chapter 9, another vision of the future. Chapter 10, another vision. Chapter 11, another All of these separate visions that all coalesce together into one big tapestry of what is coming in the future. We reach the end of that, of all of these visions in chapter 12, and we get the last few words of the vision. This is what Daniel hears and sees. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people. Now, interestingly, he doesn't say Jewish people. He just simply says, your people. Everyone whose name is found written in the book, the book of life, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The last words of all these great visions speak about the resurrection of the dead. That in these visions, God has promised there is coming an everlasting kingdom. There is coming joy and peace. That people will be set free from sin and enslavement and tyranny and injustice in this world. And the final picture is even those who died, who sleep in the dust, they will be raised to life. Some to eternal bliss, some to eternal contempt. Those who practice righteousness, those who walk by faith, will shine like the stars in the sky forever and ever. It's a beautiful, hope-filled, powerful vision. But watch how it ends. Verse 4, but you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. 
Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Daniel's confused. Turn over and see verse 8. I heard, Daniel said, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? This is an overwhelming vision. How is this all going to work itself out? Tell me more how this is all going to happen. He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Daniel has this vision, and it's rolled up and sealed, meaning not that you can't read it. We just read parts of it. People have been reading Daniel's vision for 2,500 years, but it is sealed, meaning that the events that are described cannot and will not come to pass until those seals are broken. Meaning God says, I will tell you what is coming, but now is not the time for these things to happen. And so God rolls it up and he seals it, which says these things will not come to be until these seals are broken. That's the first scene. The second scene, we have to fast forward about 600 years. Turn in your Bibles forward to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, it's page 827 in the church Bibles. If you're turning, you're going from right to left and you're moving into the New Testament. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, then comes Mark. As you're turning pages, we're actually turning through history. And what is happening is, is that from 553 BC, when Daniel is 67 years old, after that, God does lead the remnant of the Jewish people back into the land he promised to Abraham. And there they do rebuild the temple. There still is no Davidic king. There is no king who is descended from David ruling over them. They are under occupation by foreign powers, first Persia, then Greece, and then finally the Roman Empire. In 4 BC, under occupation in Rome, Jesus is born. The scene we're going to look at happens not in 4 BC when he's born, but AD 33, after he's completed three years of public ministry. It's the springtime. Jesus has just finished having his last supper with his disciples. After he finishes eating, he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. While he's there, armed troops arrive and arrest him, And they take Jesus by force to the Jewish high priest's house where he is going to stand trial. This is not a Roman trial. They're not Romans. They don't have the authority to hold a trial. This is a fact-finding trial to figure out if they can get Jesus out of the way. We pick up the story in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. 
Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. To this point, the trial is not going very well for the Jewish leaders. They're looking for evidence to be able to take to Rome to get Jesus executed. The Jewish people do not have the authority to hold a trial with capital punishment. They cannot execute anyone. They're trying to find reasons to go to Rome to say, kill this guy. So they try bringing false witnesses forward, but those false witnesses can't agree on their story. They try to go after, well, maybe this guy is a threat to the peace of Rome. Maybe if he's threatening to destroy the temple, we could take that to Rome, and then Rome would want to put down any sort of uprising and kill this man. The problem is they can't make those charges stick either. And as they're going through this whole sort of circus, Jesus just sits there quietly. They're bringing charges, but none of them can stick. At this point, the high priest decides to change tact. He asks Jesus a different question. He says to him directly, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Are you the one that we've been waiting for that will bring blessing to the whole world? Are you the promised Messiah? And Jesus answers as clearly and directly as he can, I am. Yes, I am the Messiah. When the conversation is about the temple and all the false accusations, Jesus has got nothing to say. This is now a subject he wants to talk about. Are you the Messiah? The answer is, I am. Now, for some of you who may be around these stories, for some of us that have heard these stories a lot, it might be hard to realize that at this point, at the end of the yes, I am, there is still no reason to put Jesus to death. The Messiah, lots of people had claimed to be Messiahs. They were expecting a human person to come and to lead them to freedom from the Roman Empire. To claim to be a Messiah was not a death-worthy claim. And so as soon as Jesus says, I am, yeah, I'm the Messiah, at that point, there is still no reason to put him to death. But then Jesus goes and does something. Purely on his own accord. He's not asked. In fact, he says something that is so stunning, so powerful, that the Jewish leaders wouldn't have even known to ask a question like this. 
and we come to grips with the fact that although the trial seems to be against Jesus and that they're in control, it becomes very clear that Jesus is in complete control of what's going on. And right, although the trial should be over, Jesus is going to do something that is going to force the issue. This is not their trap. This is him. And listen to what he says. Verse 62. And... You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, or the Ancient of Days, and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is this a reference to? Daniel's vision. This is a reference to the thing that made Daniel sick to his stomach. This is the thing that nobody has been able to explain. How is it possible that a son of man can come into the presence of the mighty one, the ancient of days, and come on the clouds of heaven and receive worship in God's presence? Isn't that blasphemy? And Jesus consciously says, that's me. He hands them everything that they need at that moment. They did not get this out of him. He willingly gave it to them. And when they couldn't ask the right question, he gave them the answer that they needed. And look at their response. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? The high priest has to be thinking, this is unbelievable. He's just implicated himself in front of all the elders and all the priests and all the teachers of the law. There is no way out of this. From the high priest's point of view, he has made the absolute worst possible blunder you can make. He has incriminated himself against the worst sin in in Judaism in front of everybody. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. From this point, Jesus will be crucified. And he will be crucified on the charge of blasphemy. No other charge sticks. But they will go to Rome and say, this man should die because he claimed to be God. He claimed that he deserved the same worship that the ancient of days, that the mighty one receives. And on the basis of that claim, the claim that Jesus handed them, on the charge that he gave to them, he will be crucified. Those are the two scenes and they prepare us for what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 5. So now, if you will, would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 5, page 994, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5. I just want to remind you that we, meaning long after this was written, Christians introduced chapter breaks into the Bible. They were not written with these breaks. We introduced them sort of for ease of use. 
I say that because when you turn to Revelation 5, it feels like we're in a new thing. We're not. Revelation 4 and 5 are all part of one vision. We couldn't tackle it all last week, and so we did first half last week, and we do half today, but it's all one vision. So let me remind you of what we saw last week to get us ready for what we're going to see this morning. Last week, John, a door was opened for John to come to heaven and to see what's going on. The first thing he sees is a throne that is above all the thrones of all the world. And seated on that throne is the Ancient of Days, the Most Holy One, God the Father seated on the throne, glowing and sparkling like a diamond, a ruby, an emerald, or in Daniel's language, with the brightness of the whitest clothes and garments. Around that throne, which is the throne of the universe, are the thrones of 24 elders who represent all of the people of all time. In front of the throne is the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit who blazes like fire, and in front of that is a glassy sea, calm and peaceful. Four seraphim, angelic beings, Worshiping God forever and ever along with the elders saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. I said last week that there was one person we didn't yet get introduced to in Revelation 4. We're introduced to him in Revelation 5. All the same scene. As soon as we hear what the seraphim are saying, we pick it up in Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, seated on the throne. And John looks, and in his hand, he's holding something. A scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? This is Daniel's scroll. This is Daniel 7 through 12 that we looked at. The vision that was given to Daniel was sealed up. It doesn't mean that people can't read it. We read some of it this morning. You can go and read the rest of it. But it was sealed up because none of those things will come to pass until those seals are broken. And John sees God the Father holding the scroll of the future. This is all the hopes and all the dreams, and he's holding it in his hand. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one, listen carefully to me, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Why is John weeping? I mean, he is sobbing uncontrollably. Why? Well, this is the scroll of hope. These are the promises. 
These are the promises given to Abraham, the promises given to David. This is the promise of God blessing not just Israel, but the whole world. This is the promise that a king will come who will make all things right. This is the promise and the hope of freedom. Freedom from injustice, freedom from tyranny, freedom from sin, freedom from all of the problems in this world. This is the scroll of hope. This is the idea that there will be resurrection for all those loved ones that you and I have lost who are dust on the earth. This is the promise inside the scroll is the power for them to be raised from the dead. This is all the trouble that we've experienced with alcohol and with drugs and with adultery and with murder and with sin and anger and gossip all that stuff made right and made new. This is the hope of humanity rolled up in a scroll. But the problem is if no one can break the seals, none of that will come to pass. And John sobs with the hopelessness of the fact that we lose. We lose. There is no one worthy no one worthy. He says it was searched heaven and earth and under the earth, meaning no one was found living who was worthy. No one who had died was worthy. Daniel wasn't worthy to open his own scroll. David wasn't worthy. Moses wasn't worthy. Abraham wasn't worthy. Ruth wasn't worthy. Hannah wasn't worthy. Mary wasn't worthy. Peter wasn't worthy. Paul wasn't worthy. And now hold on to your seats. God the Father wasn't worthy, and God the Holy Spirit wasn't worthy. Now, I see you getting your stones out to stone me, <laughs> but look what it says. No one in heaven, no one, no one in heaven. God the Father is present in heaven. God the Spirit is present in heaven. And when the announcement goes out, no one is worthy. No one can respond. No one can say, I will break the seals. God the Father is silent. God the Spirit is silent. And all of humans are silent. The angels are silent. No one is able. That's why John is weeping. Can you imagine being there with God holding the scroll and when the question comes, who's worthy to answer it? God stays silent. The Holy Spirit says nothing. Well, what hope can there be? Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Why couldn't God the Father or God the Holy Spirit open that scroll? We needed a descendant of David. We needed somebody who was a biological descendant of Judah to whom God promised a king would come who would reign over all things. We needed somebody who represented humanity to open up the hope for all of humanity. So it says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain 
standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. All these prayers for all these years, all these centuries, all of the prayers, our prayers, God, when are you going to do something? God, will you come and help us? God, what about my loved one who died? God, can't you do something about all the sin? God, what about the sin that holds me captive? God, can you not make things right in this world? All these prayers, all these things, this scroll will answer all that stuff. And Jesus takes the scroll and it says and they sang a new song saying to Jesus you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe language and people and nation God the Father did not do that God the Holy Spirit did not do that Jesus is the one who died. He's the one who forces the issue. He is there on trial and he knows he must be crucified. And so when they don't even know what question to ask him, he says, I'm the son of man from Daniel 7. And only one who was both fully God and fully human could be charged with blasphemy and declared guilty while being innocent at the same time. Jesus is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. Now let me say something as an aside, although it's super important. To those who are here or listening online, who may not yet be Christians. You may have grown up in the church, you may be around this kind of stuff, you may be like, well, I guess I'm Christian because I'm not something else. No, I mean if you've not yet made a decision that you're like, you know what, I choose this. I choose Christianity, I choose Jesus. Let me say this to you. Please listen carefully to what it says. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It does not say you purchased all people from every tribe, nation, people, and language. Just some. Why only some? It's not because Jesus' sacrifice isn't good enough for everybody. It's because In order for you to experience the blessings of what he did, you have to accept. You have to choose. He wants to purchase you, but it is not slavery. You have to agree to be purchased. You have to say yes to the sale. And sadly, there are some 
who will not. This is why Daniel saw in his vision, some are raised from the dead for everlasting life, and some are raised from the dead to everlasting contempt. They do not experience everlasting contempt because God hates them. God has made a way in Jesus for every person to be saved. And if you today will simply acknowledge that Jesus is the person in Daniel's vision, that Jesus the human is God in the flesh, that Jesus died on a cross not because he got tricked into being crucified, not because things went wrong in sort of a cosmic kind of way, but because he chose to obey the plans of God the Father to save you and to save me. If you will choose to believe that person is Jesus, you will be saved. If we believe in our hearts that Jesus, the human Jesus, born in Nazareth in 4 BC, crucified in 33 AD, that this same Jesus was raised from the dead and is Lord, you'll be saved. For those of us who do believe, it says, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, And 10,000 times 10,000, does that sound familiar? It's Daniel's language. This is the scene unfolding that Daniel saw. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This is what Daniel saw. He saw Jesus, the son of man, come into the throne room and everybody bow down and worship him. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the ancient of days, to God the Father, who planned all of this, who planned it in such a brilliant way that the Jewish high priests and the teachers of the law couldn't even figure out the question to ask who planned it in such a way that Daniel, such a godly, holy person, can't even begin to understand what he's seeing, who planned this in such a way that that scroll is sealed up with these seals, but there is one who is worthy to break those, one who is both human and divine, and the fact that one person is both God and man makes all of this happen. You sit back and you say, who could have thought of such a thing? and not only thought of it, announced it 553 years before Jesus was even born. Who can do such things? God the Father, and so we praise him and we worship him. And to the Lamb, who made all this happen? Who heard the plans of the Father and said, here am I, send me. Who's the one that said, I will become a human for the rest of eternity and I will die for them because I love them? It was Jesus. If God could have just waved his hand and broke the seals, he would have done it. But there was no one worthy, not you, not me, not Daniel, not David, not any angel. Nobody could do this. And so Jesus stood up and said, I'll do it. And the father said, you're going to have to become a human forever and ever. 
I will do it. You will have to die on a cross and be separated from me. I'll do it. You will have to suffer rejection and abuse. I will do it. Because I love them. And I do not want them to perish. And so rightfully, all of creation says to God the Father and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. In just a minute, we're going to take communion. We're going to do it as part of a song. So we'll start singing. I'm going to get up in the middle, and we're going to take communion and then keep singing. You have a little cup in front of you. Here's what I need you to do. If you're not yet a Christian, just leave the little cup and the bread alone. This is for people who have acknowledged Jesus as Lord, and if you're not yet ready to say that, that's okay. We want something different for you, but just please don't participate in the ceremony if you've not yet ready to make that choice. If, however, you are a Christian, or... If today you want to be a Christian, if today you want this to be your future, if today you want to say yes to Jesus, if today when you heard me say, Jesus is the one from Daniel 7, Jesus is the one who made the crucifixion happen, Jesus is the one who rose from the dead and is the one who receives all glory and honor, if you say, yes, I choose to believe that, then take communion as a sign to yourself and to God that you're saying yes to Jesus. So hold on to that cup and that bread. You can peel them back a little if you want. We're going to sing, and then I'll get back up and we'll take them together. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, Seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.